Hey, listeners, did you know that the team behind Real Outlaws has other podcasts, too? Discover them all at Noiser.com, home of the Noiser Network. You'll find hundreds of immersive true stories. There's a world of podcasts waiting for you. So don't miss it. Listen on the website or wherever you get your podcasts. Against the backdrop of the Great Depression, John Dillinger rose as one of America's most salacious and flamboyant gangsters of the 1930s, becoming a household name, idolized by many. Dillinger and his gang's epic tale of prison breaks, bank jobs, and brotherhood became first-class entertainment for the American public. Still, it's easy to see him for what he was, a hardened criminal. So what's the true story behind the legend? A born villain destined for organized crime? Or a wayward youth who stumbled into infamy? This is John Dillinger, part two, The Dillinger Gang. John Dillinger, alleged leader of a gang of bank bandits who have robbed 27 banks in the last 60 days, is said to be the brains behind the prison break at Michigan City, Tuesday, which resulted in the escape of 10 desperate men. It's October 12th, 1933, a quiet night in Lima, Ohio. Crickets and the sounds of late summer swell around the quaint Lima County Jail. Sheriff Sarber, a portly, grizzled, good-tempered man of 60, sits at his desk, finishing the week's paperwork while his wife sits nearby in her rocking chair, working on a crossword puzzle. The on-duty deputy lies sprawled out on the sofa in the corner of the room, snoring lightly, lost beneath the cowboy hat that covers his face. A quiet night indeed, John Dillinger sits alert on his squeaky cot, locked behind bars in a jail cell. He thumbs the rim of his tin mug as he pensively takes in the room, seemingly waiting for something, or someone. He bolts upright when he eventually hears voices outside. His eyes dart to the front door. Three men enter the small jailhouse dressed in Michigan City police uniforms. John Dillinger's eyes flicker with recognition. These aren't your everyday Michigan City police. These three men are none other than Harry Pierpont, Charles Makeley, and Russell Clark, the very men Dillinger helped to free from Michigan City just days before. A beaming smile breaks out on Dillinger's face as he exchanges a knowing look with his friends. They came for him. What can I do for you men? Sheriff Sarber croaks, fleetingly glancing up from his paperwork. Pierpont steps up. We're here from Michigan City to question Dillinger. Sheriff Sarber's eyes narrow, sizing up the men. Let me see your credentials, Sarber belts. Here are credentials. Pierpont bites back, going for his gun. 
In a sudden panic, Sarber reaches for his own weapon, but Pierpont is faster, ripping his gun from its holster and firing off two bullets, one of which hits Sarber in the abdomen. Sarber's wife screams and falls to the floor next to her husband. The deputy jolts awake and throws his hands up. He's not going to be any trouble. Sheriff Sarber attempts to rise, but Makeley and Pierpont pistol whip him. Where are the keys? Pierpont barks. Sarber's wife screams again, pleading with the men to stop beating her husband. She sobs as she finds the keys in her husband's desk and hands them over to the men. Dillinger smiles to his three friends. I knew you boys wouldn't let me rotten here. Let's go. The men check for a pulse on Sheriff Sarber. He's dead all right. They lock Sarber's weeping widow and the petrified deputy in the jail cell before stepping out into the warm Ohio night to find Harry Copeland and Red Hamilton waiting with two cars. This escape mirrors the many imagined getaways the six men discussed during their time inside together, smooth like clockwork. The men load up into the getaway cars and drive off into the sweet, sultry summer night. As they drive, John Dillinger exhales, taking in the vast, open road before him. A new chapter. Three gunmen, one of whom has been identified as a member of the group of ten convicts who escaped from the Michigan City, Indiana Penitentiary on September 26th, walked boldly into the county jail here this evening. Drawing revolvers, they killed Sheriff Jess Sarber when he barred the way and then effected the delivery of John Dillinger, bank robber and desperado who was the outside man of the Indiana jailbreak. History is full of men and women who live outside the law. Some are heroes, others are villains. Many are both. Each week, we'll take you on a journey into the life and times of notorious outlaws, from Billy the Kid and Ned Kelly to Anne Bonny and Al Capone. We'll delve deep into their stories to find out how legends were born and continue to grow, often long after they're gone. I'm Nathan Wiley, and this is Real Outlaws. Dillinger's rescue is featured in local Midwestern papers with daily headlines that would mark the start of the American love affair with John Dillinger and what is now known to be his crew, the Dillinger Gang. Rejecting the pitiful post-prison life on offer, John Dillinger chooses friendship and loyalty and a life outside the law. He promises his buddies a new chapter, a new chapter that the gang will collectively write for itself. In the spring of 1933, paroled from the Indiana State Penitentiary the previous May, Dillinger immediately turns to a life of crime. He and a makeshift crew go on a crime spree, zigzagging across Indiana and Ohio. 
It's estimated the group gets away with more than $50,000, including a robbery in the town of Bluffton. The money helps, but Dillinger, now separated from his buddies who are still incarcerated, finds himself alone. Always a hopeless romantic, Johnny had married young, but his years in prison had put an end to the marriage. Elliot J. Gorn is a historian and author of Dillinger's Wild Ride, the year that made America's public enemy number one. Dillinger married very, very young, and she was very young. Beryl Holbius was her name, an Indiana girl. I think she was 16. And then he ended up in prison, and she eventually, after a few years, she divorced him, which apparently he was quite broken up about. Dillinger's longing heart now takes him to Dayton, Ohio. There, he visits 23-year-old Mary Longnecker, the sister of a friend. At her boarding house over the summer months, a romance develops. But Dillinger is already firmly in the crosshairs of the authorities. The investigators with Pinkerton National Detective Agency soon learn about the robber's love interest and spy a weakness. It's not long before Mary's landlady informs the police. At 1 a.m. on September 22, 1933, the Dayton police burst into Longnecker's room. Dillinger is found in bed. He's arrested and transferred to the Allen County Jail in Lima to be indicted in connection with the Bluffton robbery. But jail won't hold him for long. With Dillinger's help, his friends at Indiana State Penitentiary have just escaped themselves, and now they intend to return the favor. His friends who had escaped from prison found him, found out where he was, came into the jail at Lima, told the sheriff, Jess Sarber, that they were there to transfer his prisoner, John Dillinger. He asked to see their credentials, and they shot him to death and sprang Dillinger out. And that's the beginning of this, uh, the main Dillinger gang that was made up of Dillinger himself and those who escaped from the Indiana State Penitentiary. The Dillinger gang is about to burst into the public consciousness and they enjoy a year-long honeymoon period where they are accused of robbing 24 banks and four police stations. On October 14, 1933, two nights after the boys free Dillinger and while the small town of Lima prepares to bury Sheriff Sarber, the gang officially gets up and running. Dillinger and Pierpont stick up the police station in Auburn, Indiana. They take several pistols, two automatic rifles, three bulletproof vests, other assorted small arms, and all the ammunition they can carry. They also make off with a Thompson submachine gun. The iconic weapon of choice for both gangland mobsters and battlefield infantry, the Tommy gun is a game changer for the Dillinger gang. The lightweight weapon can unleash 100 rounds of 45 caliber ammunition in less than 10 seconds. Meaning they can now shoot their way out of trouble anytime, anywhere. About a week later, Dillinger and Pierpont stick up another police station, adding to their growing armory, two more Tommy guns, 
two sawed-off shotguns, and six more bulletproof vests. Never mind bank clerks. They can now take on the National Guard if they want to. The heavily armed Dillinger gang levels up from small-town menace to national obsession. One of the things about the Dillinger gang that they were pretty efficient at was procuring weapons and even bulletproof vests by robbing state armories in Indiana. And this really did give them tremendous advantage. They usually went into bank robberies much better armed, much better equipped than local police. And they knew this. They deliberately chose banks, usually in small towns, where the equipment that the police had would be much, much less effective than what they had. That included even police radios that the police often could not speak to each other yet on police radios. So they had very, very good equipment for these bank robberies. The gang commits small-town bank robberies with better weapons, faster cars, and more body armor than the local police could ever dream of. On Monday, October 23, 1933, four members of the Dillinger gang park outside of the Central National Bank and Trust Company of Greencastle, Indiana. Three men enter the bank while one man stands guard at the door. Pierpont casually walks up to a cashier and gives her a $20 bill and asks her if it's genuine. As the banker studies it, the Dillinger gang draws its weapons, including their new Tommy guns. Dillinger performs his signature bank robbing move, leaping over the railing into the teller's cage and empties drawers of money into a sack while the gang empties the vault. They flee with $25,000 in cash and 50,000 in bonds. As they predicted, the alarms don't even go off until they are already on the road. Smooth, just like clockwork. So the national attention that they get, they get media attention because here's a gang identified with one name really two at the beginning, John Dillinger, but also another of the men who came out of jail, a much more hardened criminal than Dillinger, Harry Pierpont. It's an identifiable gang, a group that keeps robbing banks. They keep being seen. So the media gets wind of this. And first it's local and regional news. And then finally it's national news. The gang's infamy grows. Newspapers report that nearly a quarter of a million dollars has been stolen since the first of the year. The Indiana state authorities are humiliated and are forced to take drastic action. Federal agents are brought in to consult and the National Guard is called in. 70 officers and 500 soldiers are deputized, armed with machine guns, shotguns, and deployed in small squads around the state of Indiana. The Dillinger gang has declared war against the U.S. establishment. So, a war is what they'll get. With Indiana now so heavily policed, the gang decides to move on and let the heat cool off. They relocate to Chicago, Illinois, taking up residence at the Northside Apartments and quietly blend into city life. By all accounts, a small commune of criminality springs up around them. Lovers and girlfriends move in, 
and for a while they are more like a family than a vicious gang of desperados. Three's malts to describe the women who hung around with the gang. The gang members don't exactly know their role. Again, anything, any illegal activity like this, it's not as if we have a lot of inside scoop into what the daily life of people was like. But it seems to be sort of fairly traditional working class kind of roles. Probably the women mostly took care of the kinds of traditional domestic things that women did back then and just making the meals and, and so on. By the same token, we certainly know that they could be active in helping to plan and even execute some of the robbers. Mary Kinder shares an apartment with Harry Pierpont. Charles Makeley keeps company with a woman named Patricia Long. Russell Clark dates Patricia's sister. Homer Van Meter bunks with a woman named Mary Conforti. Mary Kinder describes the gang's domestic life as homey. Clothes are always hanging on the line outside. Someone's always cooking. Suddenly finding themselves with money, the gang takes care of medical issues that were long overdue, like going to the dentist and the doctor. But they're not living like monks, either. The men buy their lovers lavish gifts, like mink stoles, clothes, and jewelry. Many of the members go shopping together, frequent fine restaurants, nightclubs, and the cinema. It's around this time that John Dillinger meets the object of his next infatuation, Billy Freshette, a hat-check girl at a local club. The Dillinger gang came to Chicago, and he happened to go to a nightclub where a young woman named Evelyn Sparks, she preferred the name Billy, was a hat-check girl, and they met. Now, Evelyn Sparks' husband was a man named Wendell Sparks who was doing time in prison and was not going to get out anytime soon. And it seems that Billy and John Dillinger really fell for each other, genuinely fell for each other. Billy was from Wisconsin. She was Menominee Indian on her mother's side. She had grown up actually on, on the reservation in northern, northern Wisconsin. And here was this, again, good-looking, charming man who seemed to have a lot of money and she knew pretty quickly what this life was about. She was involved with a man who was in prison anyway. She knew pretty quickly what this was going to be about, and she was willing. And so were so, so many of the other women who end up being permanent girlfriends of members of the gang. They know what they're in for. They know what they're doing. But it's exciting. There's money. It's an escape from, again, you know, pretty difficult lives in the Great Depression. So they, as I say, they fall for each other. However peaceful a home life the gang enjoys in Chicago, the constant threat of being captured hangs over them. They only stay in one apartment complex for so long and often move locations. Through the autumn of 1934, the gang leads a comfortable life, hiding just under the police's radar, but never able to fully forget that they are morphing into public enemy number one with every robbery. It's November 20th, 1934. Dillinger, Makeley, Russell, and Clark ride in a 1930s Buick, along with their driver, through the town of Racine, Wisconsin. Dillinger says casually, Everyone remember the plan? Any questions? The car full of men is eerily quiet. The only sound comes from the tires on the road 
and passing cars. It's the calm before the storm. The car pulls up outside the American Bank and Trust Company. It's game time. The men park the Buick, leaving their driver without a word. He already knows what to do. Like the seasoned pros they are, Dillinger and Pierpont enter the bank and reveal their guns from beneath their jackets. This is a stick-up, Dillinger yells as he and Pierpont each take a bank employee hostage. Take me to the vault, Dillinger demands. Dillinger and Pierpont follow their hostages to the back of the building, behind the counter. Meanwhile, Makeley turns his gun on the head teller, who stops counting his cash, putting his hands up. Overtaken by fear, the head teller instinctively turns his back to Makeley to run, but Makeley shoots the man. The bullet pierces the bank teller's arm and enters his hip. He screams out in pain and falls to the floor. But as he crashes to the ground, he manages to reach out and press the alarm. Chaos erupts, but Makeley and Clark keep their cool. They jump the counter and clean out the teller's cages. In the back of the bank, by the vault, with the alarms ringing in their ears, Dillinger and Pierpont exchange a heavy look. They glance out the front window. A crowd of spectators is already gathering outside. They can also hear the distant, ominous, approaching cry of police sirens. Time is running out. Open the damn vault, Dillinger barks at the quivering bank manager. Back at the front of the bank, Makeley and Clark continue to stuff their sacks with money from the teller's cages when the front door of the bank swings open and Officer Wilbur Hansen casually saunters in, expecting to find another false alarm. Hansen quickly realizes his mistake when he sees Makeley raising his gun. Officer Hansen falls to the floor, dead. Makeley then sends a barrage of bullets through the front window at another approaching police officer who collapses to the ground in a storm of broken glass. Onlookers scream with terror and run for cover. Dillinger and Pierpont emerge next to Makeley and Clark, their sacks loaded with $28,000 in bills. Exiting the bank, the men grab several hostages and use them as human shields, stepping over the dead officers as they leave. The gang pulls the hostages to the getaway car and forces them to stand on the vehicle's running boards before the Buick screeches away. Several black and white squad cars follow the Buick, but refrain from firing because of the innocents perched precariously on the outside of the car. That's when Dillinger sees an upcoming railroad crossing flash its lights red. Caution. Dillinger looks to his driver. Step on it, Dillinger yells. The driver puts the pedal to the metal. It's a race against time as the Buick launches itself over the railroad crossing just seconds before the high-speed train sails past behind them, ensuring their escape. 
The passengers both inside and outside the car collectively exhale with relief. Dillinger looks back to a woman. One of the terrified hostages still stood on the running boards. Excuse me, ma'am, he says. I apologize for the profanity. I don't mean to act so rudely in front of the lady. Still smiling, Dillinger flashes a wink as the whistle of the train echoes in the surrounding expansive farmland as they drive away. But the robbery did not go completely according to plan. One officer was shot and killed. There's the whole taking of hostages who were let go. Dillinger's actually, it's noted in the press, Dillinger's supposedly particularly kind to one woman who's cold riding out there on the running board uh, for a little while in the car. He gives her his coat, but they are taking hostages. They did kill a man. They loosely tie everyone up and then drive away. But this is the beginning of something else that's been happening. It's starting to get hot for them. They're starting to get well-known. The House of Cards is starting to wobble. On November 19, 1933, the day before the Racine, Wisconsin robbery, gang member Harry Copeland is arrested in Chicago as a result of a drunk altercation with a prostitute. Then, on December 14th, John Red Hamilton, a core member of the group, is tracked by police to a Northside auto shop. Hamilton shoots an officer twice, fatally. Two days later, Chicago starts its own Dillinger squad made up of 40 marksmen. The gang realized that Chicago is now too hot for them, so they hit the road again, this time traveling south to Florida. The Dillinger gang in four or five cars drive down to Daytona Beach, Florida, to winter in Florida. Dillinger, Pierpont, Mackley, they go down there with their girlfriends, rent a place by the beach, and actually, as it turns out, only stay for a month. Only about four weeks into their Florida stay, the gang becomes restless, and they soon find themselves driving across the southern states towards Tucson, Arizona. Everyone in the gang except for Dillinger, and John Hamilton, that is. On January 15th, while the others make their way west, Dillinger and Hamilton head back north to Indiana, where they enter a branch of the First National Bank of Chicago. The robbery mirrors the job in Racine, Wisconsin. However, unlike the Wisconsin job, as the bank robbers emerge, an officer on the street thinks he has a clear shot. Officer William O'Malley yells to one of the hostages to duck and then shoots Dillinger four times in the chest. Fortunately for Dillinger, he's wearing a bulletproof vest. Dillinger returns fire, striking Officer O'Malley eight times, killing him. O'Malley's killing is the first and only one directly attributed to Dillinger's own hand. John Dillinger now has a capital crime linked to his name. All hell breaks loose, but the bank robbers once again escape with their lives, although Hamilton is shot in the ankle in the getaway. Hamilton goes to ground to recover, whilst Dillinger heads south to rendezvous with the rest of the gang in Arizona, where he hopes to finally lie low and regroup. 
So, he's totally unprepared for what awaits him. Russell Clark and Charles Makeley arrive in Tucson as early as the second week in January, 1934. They explore the local nightlife. Fueled with booze and feeling boastful, they loudly brag about their exploits. The next day, their drinking buddies tip off the local police, alerting the authorities to the gang's whereabouts. Clearly the gang had gone there to lie low, to be obscure, to not be bothered, to just spend some time where they're not under the scrutiny of the law. And yet, as it turns out, a group like this with out-of-state plates in a small town like Tucson, Arizona, kind of flashily dressed outlaw types, they, they do get noticed. And some of the gang members are not very good at keeping their mouths shut about things that they know and so on. Then on January 22nd, a fire breaks out at the Congress Hotel, where Clark and Makeley are staying. They pay firefighters to haul out trunks of guns, money, and bulletproof vests. What seems like a lucky escape turns out to be quite the opposite. The gang celebrity finally catches up with them. A couple days later, firemen are happen to be looking at True Detective magazine, and they see a photo, and they see photographs of the guys they just happened to help, a photo of the Dillinger gang. So now the police have word of this. And one by one, the police really quite carefully and quite skillfully, without a shot being fired, managed to arrest one by one the members of the gang, including finally John Dillinger himself. On January 25th, Tucson law enforcement make their move. Four police officers stake out the gang's safe house on 2nd Avenue. The cops follow Makeley to an electronics store where he's quietly arrested. They then return to 2nd Avenue, where an officer finds Clark, a big man, just inside the doorway. Clark grabs for a gun, and the two men wrestle before a second officer bursts in and bashes Clark over the head taking him into custody. After a few hours, Pierpont and Mary Kinder approach the house on 2nd Avenue, but finding it empty, drive away. The waiting cops tail them and arrest them too. Lastly, completely unaware of what's been going on, Dillinger is picked up off the street as he approaches the 2nd Avenue house. As easy as that, the Dillinger gang is captured. The operation runs like clockwork, as smooth as one of Dillinger's own bank robberies. And the entire gang ends up in court in Tucson, and they are remanded, all of them, to different states because of the murder in Racine, Wisconsin. Wisconsin wants them brought back to Wisconsin. As it's finally decided by the court to send Dillinger to Crown Point, Indiana, because of the murder that took place in East Chicago just before he went to Tucson. The others, Pierpont, Mackley, and so on, go back to Lima, Ohio, to stand trial for the murder of Sheriff Sperber. The story turns from there into, a, first of all, a rendition of, of Dillinger and the others across country by plane, again, with tremendous publicity and so on. March 3rd, 1934. It's a quiet Saturday morning in the exercise room at Indiana's notorious Crown Point Jail. It's a sparse setting, a few barbells scattered about. 
Dillinger looks to his cellmate, a large black man standing five feet nine inches tall by the name of Herbert Youngblood, locked away for murder and scheduled to be executed any day now. Herbert does push-ups in the corner of the room. Dillinger looks over to Deputy Sheriff Ernest Blunk, yawning in the corner by the door, standing guard. If it's one thing that Dillinger knows, it's how to seize a moment. This is the moment. He calls to Blunk. When the deputy ambles over, Dillinger pulls a handgun from his waistband, flips the man and pushes the barrel into his back. Now, walk to the other guards, call them in. Dillinger whispers calmly into the man's ear. Dillinger nods to Herbert to follow them. The men round up the other guards. He's got a gun, Blunk shouts. Dillinger loads the guards into his own jail cell and locks the door, but he keeps Blunk hostage, with his pistol still pressed tightly against the deputy's back. He exchanges a look with Youngblood. Time to move. They race down the jail hallway with Blunk in tow. Youngblood grabs the stick of a toilet plunger for a weapon. We need to get everybody. Round them up, says Dillinger. The men find more guards and other personnel eating in the break room, at least a dozen of them in all, and throw them in the cells as well. Dillinger and Youngblood then hurry downstairs where they find a prison locker holding weapons. Like two kids in a candy store, they help themselves to machine guns, pistols, and shotguns. They race across the street to a garage where Dillinger shouts to the mechanic, give me the fastest car you got. The mechanic looks around. Uh, that'd be Sheriff Holly's car, sir. Dillinger takes a moment and smiles, loving every bit of the irony. Why, yes, he will take the sheriff's car. They force Deputy Blunk into the driver's seat and guide the mechanic into the back of Sheriff Holly's car. Drenched in sweat, Blunk turns on the engine and puts the car in gear. The men drive. Why do you need me? The mechanic cries out from the back seat. You'll be useful in case we break down, Dillinger jokes. Dillinger keeps his gun pointed at Blunk who drives. And take your time, 30 miles an hour is enough. The four men casually drive as they pass a sign pointing towards Chicago. Dillinger suddenly lets out a laugh. What's so funny? Blunk asks bitterly. A broad smile spreads across Dillinger's face. I did it all with my toy pistol. Dillinger reveals the pistol he held into Blunk's back during the escape. It's a toy gun carved out of wood and darkened with shoe polish. I spent the whole last month carving it. Ain't she pretty? Blunk slumps in his seat while Dillinger and Youngblood exchange a look before both burst out laughing. As the men cruise through northern Indiana, Dillinger sings. Get along, little doggies, get along, get along the world once again at his feet.
Dillinger's confidence, bravado, showmanship, and his charisma echo loudly in the media, especially after his ballsy escape from Crown Point Jail in Dayton, Ohio. Mary Kinder, Harry Pierpont's girlfriend, is quoted as saying, Of course, I'm glad Johnny got away. I'm tickled to death. The whole United States is glad. Everybody was for him. It's complicated whether to call Dillinger a Robin Hood. I think a lot of people knew that he was robbing from the rich. He was taken from banks, and banks were hated in 1934. Something like 10,000 American banks had closed during the Great Depression. There was no insurance. Uh, when those banks closed, they took people's savings, their businesses, they took everything with them. Americans were angry, angry at banks and bankers. They believed, and probably sometimes rightly, that it was not just the economic crisis that destroyed banks, it was also bad management. So I don't think people really saw him so much as a Robin Hood that he was giving to the poor. You occasionally get that story. I think more important, they were just happy that someone was giving it back to the banks. And that was, that was John Dillinger. Despite the horror and bloodshed, the Dillinger gang's legacy grows. With thousands of families out of work and unable to pay their bills, the anti-establishment war the Dillinger gang seems to be waging chimes a chord, resonating with the working man. It's even claimed that some of the financial institutions welcomed the Dillinger robberies. Many banks are so mismanaged or overextended that a robbery would hide or cover up any corruption. They could also collect on the insurance after the crime. To many Americans, public enemy number one isn't the Dillinger gang at all. It's the bankers, who for years have been robbing the American public. One man wrote, I am for John Dillinger. To the voice of the reader column in the Indianapolis Star, the citizen explains that he wasn't any worse than the bankers or the politicians who took the poor people's money. Dillinger didn't rob poor people. He, he robbed those who became rich by robbing the poor. I'm for Johnny. I think if we think of in terms of John Dillinger's legacy, it's, it's ambivalent the way Americans are horrified by crime, really hate crime and hate violence. By the same token, here's an example where, with Dillinger, where they could see it and not want it, not like it, not think, oh yeah, we need more of this, but still be somehow ambivalent enough so that, so that a man like John Dillinger and really some of the other celebrity criminals of the era, given the context, given the Great Depression, could be seen as heroic. Little does he know, as John Dillinger drives off into the sunset, he also crosses a line, a state line to be exact. 700 miles away in Washington, D.C., in a well-ventilated office, one man vows to bring the Dillinger gang down. Enough is enough. He picks up the phone and starts making calls. On the other side of that heroism was the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, who really considered John Dillinger a menace, truly, truly what he became public enemy number one, someone who had to be stopped. Well, J. Edgar Hoover is a pretty serious enemy. Next time on Real Outlaws, 
a young special agent in charge of the Bureau of Investigation's Chicago office, Melvin Purvis, writes to his boss, J. Edgar Hoover, and vows to take down the embarrassing Dillinger gang once and for all. Will the Dillinger gang's luck finally run out? That's next time on Real Outlaws.